0: Good morning. We are thrilled that you have decided to tune in once again as we open the word and we study our Sabbath school quarterly. Now, as you know, we're looking at the book of Hebrews, a book that combines masterfully sermons and prayers, petitions, and problems. And today we're going to look at who Jesus is for the author of Hebrews and how Hebrews does this majestic work of connecting Jesus with Israel's songbook. Before we jump into the text, though, I'd love to ask you, to pray with me as we join together digitally with the God that exists in both the digital world and the analogical world pray with me God we are thankful for the presence of Jesus we are thankful because you have given us the opportunity to become heirs and co-heirs with you we are thankful because on this sabbath in Jesus we have both our king and our high priest. We ask that as we study who you have said to be, that that knowledge change the way we look at ourselves and the way we frame who we are. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. You know, often we spend our time waiting, you know, you wait at the supermarket line, you wait as you are getting ready to pump gas if you're living in Loma Linda, Costco gas station on a Friday requires almost mosaic patience. We wait as we get in or out of the freeway, we wait in traffic, we wait for our number to come up at the DMV. So much of our lives are shaped by waiting. Whether it's my children waiting for Santa Claus to come, or whether it's our people that are single waiting. There's a song that George Gershwin composed and that the great Gloria Gaynor sang uh, that captures perfectly the sentiment of waiting. Listen to the song. It says, Someday he'll come along, the man I love, and he'll be big and strong, the man I love, and when he comes my way, I'll do my best to make him stay. And so we wait. We wait because those whom we wait for shape our lives. That which we wait for shapes what we care about. Now, I wonder how the author of Hebrews envisions life as he is waiting with a community that is anticipating breathlessly the coming of Christ, the one who is to shape their lives. And last week, we talked a little bit about the prologue, but today, today we talk about who Jesus is in the light of the epistle to the Hebrews. We talk about this because in this particular passage that we are going to go through, you have this idea of what I like to call the paradox of Christology. Now, don't worry if you don't understand what that is. We'll unpack that statement in a bit, but for now, just let me read with you. Uh, the passage that we are going to consider this morning. It is contained in verses 5 through 14 of chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. We're just going to go through it and then we're going to make a couple notes that are linking this particular passage with some other texts in the Old Testament in order to buttress his case for a paradoxical Christology. So, Hebrews 1, verses 5 through 14 reads like this. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever. A scepter of justice will be a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain they will wear out like a garment you will roll them up like a robe like a garment they will be changed but you remain the same and your years will never end to which the to which of the angels did god ever say sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool of your feet are not all the angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation now this particular passage which deals with the author of Hebrews' vision of who Christ is, is extremely interesting because in this passage, the author engages in what we call a catena. Now, a catena is simply a chain, a chain of texts that the author uses in order to make a particular point. And so, the author is reaching back to a particular section of scripture where he'll link all these ideas together in order to make a point. What I find so meaningful about this pro- this post-prologue, if you will, is that the chain that the author uses is almost entirely comprised of psalms. If you have a Bible, Just take these psalms down, and you'll see how the author begins to sprinkle them in to his claims of who Jesus is. So he's going to begin by pushing us back to look at Psalm uh, chapter 2, verse 7. He's going to also talk about the royal lineage of David, and so he's going to link Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And then to 1 Chronicles 17, 13. This is just in the first two verses. And in essence, what he is going to do is he's going to link the reality of Jesus' enthronement as the Son of God with the Davidic line. Again, Jesus is his Son. And the Sonship of Christ places him head and shoulders above the angels. But, He is also the one who inherits the throne of David. And so when we talk about paradoxical Christology, this is what we talk about. We talk about the notion that God is both the divine Son of Yahweh, the Jesus that spoke the universe into existence, but that he is also the continuation of God's promises to the Davidic line. It's interesting that the promise that Yahweh makes to David in the Old Testament is that he, in essence, will construct a house for God. And most Old Testament interpreters understand this as referring to the temple. But the author of Hebrews grabs this idea of the Davidic line as the construction of a house and says that the family of God now has their home in Jesus. What I find so powerful about this is that as people are awaiting for the return of Christ that will reshape their existence, the author of Hebrews gives them a home a place to wait for. And we all know what this means. Think about the last time you went to the phys- to a physician's office. You go in and you pass through the numerous protocols that are put in place for our safety. You get your temperature checked, you're wearing your mask, you're almost out of breath because you've sprinted across the parking lot, and then you get to the desk. You check in and they will send you into a waiting room. Now you're full of nervousness and you are impatient as you thumb through the magazines or you watch whatever they've placed on the television at the waiting room. And then you hear your name. The door swings open, you hear your name and alas, All the excitement and the nervousness gives way to relief because finally you will see the physician. Now, you walk in, they take your temperature again, they check your blood pressure, maybe even uh, weigh you on the scale, although I wouldn't recommend that after the holiday season. And what happens next? Do you get to see the physician finally? No. You go into another waiting room. But something interesting happens. Somehow, that second waiting room, that smaller waiting room that you enter feels different than the first waiting room. It feels more special. It feels more connected. It actually feels like you're making some progress. And, the interesting thing about the author of Hebrews is that he is constructing a home in Jesus for people to re- wait, await the return of Jesus. It's almost like that second waiting room. It's a waiting room that is full and pregnant with intentionality. But he's not done yet. He not only wants us to make sure that we understand that this paradoxical Christology, this Jesus who is both king and Savior, this Jesus who was both creator and heir in the Davidic line, this Jesus who was both our returning judge and our home, this Jesus is one that will have his throne last forever and ever. And what I find really interesting is that the author in verse 7 and on is using a whole other litany of psalms in order to continue constructing his catena, or as we said, his chain. He's going to use Psalm 103 and Psalm 101. Now, Psalm 103 has to do with, a cre- is with creation. And so it's interesting that again, you have that paradox, that paradox that would have been evident to the first readers of the epistle. In essence, Jesus is the creator of the whole universe. And you have this notion appear time and time again throughout the New Testament. Paul will refer to Jesus as the firstborn of all of creation, for instance. You're also going to have sprinkled in this section that we just read, Passages that sound very reminiscent of Psalm 101, which is a petitionary psalm. And so you are not only referring to the God, the Jesus who created everything, you're also making petitions to that same Jesus. But where I find the author of Hebrews to be masterful is in his use of Psalm 44, which also appears in the Katana. Psalm 44 is a royal psalm. It's a psalm that has to do with the enshrinement and the enthronement of David. It's a psalm that appears right at the heart of verse 8. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. And what is so interesting is the usage that the author gives to a psalm, Psalm 44, that is intended To talk about a temporal kingdom and how that author then reinterprets it to talk about Messiah's reign. I'll take the idea of a scepter. Now, the original Greek word that Hebrews uses to define what scepter means has to do with a tool for measuring, something that would be straight rather than crooked. And so, he masterfully combines these ideas of an eternal kingdom of righteous, where righteousness is loved with this notion of a king that will just, that will judge justly, that has a scepter that is unbent and not crooked, a scepter that is straight. and this scepter obviously is a symbol of his righteous judgment. He anoints also, and he and Jesus is set aside or set apart from uh, all the other angels because he has been anointed. And he has been anointed with the oil of joy. Now, the word anointed in Greek is sounds very similar to the word anointed one, yeah, the word we use for Christ that old Hebrew used Messiah, Hebrew word Messiah and so there's this beautiful play on words where the anointing or the special task that Jesus has been called to perform is one of providing joy so the kingdom that is to last forever in this paradox that is the Messiah is one that breathes righteousness righteousness and joy Again, you have the notion then that appears about the eternal existence of the heavens and the earth. And the the idea of the unchanging characteristic and the unchanging nature of Christ's kingdom. And so again, you have this paradox. You have the idea of kingdoms, which... The Israelites know a lot about. The people reading the epistle of Hebrews know a lot about kingdoms that change, kingdoms that come and go, kingdoms that are built up on the promises of righteousness but are ultimately unable to deliver. You have that interest mixed with the idea of eternity, changelessness. It's almost as if the author of Hebrews begins to build up his case until he reaches the apex. You remain the same. Your years will never end. I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And again, the author of Hebrews will reach down to another psalm. He has not only talked about creation, about enthronement and about petition, he has now reached his climax, Psalm 109, which has to do with the divine rule that God has for us. Now, all of this leads us to believe that the author of Hebrews is engaging not only in a paradoxical Christian, Christology, but he is also engaging in what I like to call paradoxical hermeneutics. In other words, he's talking about the kingdom that is, that has come in Jesus, but he's also talking about the kingdom to come. And this is evident as he closes his section. He says, are not all the angels ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation? And the word that is used at the end of verse 14, and that appears in your Bible as inherit, is the same word that is used to describe how Christ has become heir and how he has inherited. And so the connection ought to be evident to us. Because Christ has inherited, we too will inherit. This is the good news of the book of Hebrews, that Christ's inheritance has become now our inheritance. And this is the beauty of paradoxical Christology. The one who doles out the inheritance is the same one who inherits in order for us to inherit. And so we return to the question that we started out with. It's a question that is rather simple. We said how that which we wait for typically tends to shape who we are, that the person we wait for shapes our value systems, and that the events that we wait for shape our cosmology, shape the way we look at the world. The author of Hebrews knew what he was waiting for. He was waiting for the one who embodies paradoxical Christology. He was waiting for the one who provides us a paradoxical way of interpreting Scripture. The one who he was waiting for was the one who created, inherited, and will dole out our inheritance. My question to you is rather simple. As we continue reading through the book of Hebrews, who and what are you waiting for? And my hope is that you will be able to answer that question with the same certainty that the author of the epistle does. But more than that, I want to ask you how invested are you in following that maxim, be that which you wait for, that which you work for? May you work for his kingdom as an heir until his kingdom comes. Joey, let's talk a little bit about Hebrews. In my mind, one of the most amazing passages that have to do with Christology in all of the New Testament.
1: I know. Yeah, the the basis of a lot of our Christology has its foundation right here in what um, the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews describes about Jesus. It's just beautiful. And I had never thought about this before, but the the linkage, the chain that you described of the psalms that he connects to, together, there's just so much more richness that mm-hmm. comes out when you realize which psalms he's drawing from and what the point of those psalms mm-hmm. were. Because it's not just the phrase that he's not he's not doing eisegesis where he just takes one phrase out and then inter- reinterpreting it. He wants us to understand where that phrase comes from and the message of the psalm that that's linked to. And you just beautifully described that. So thank you so much for that.
0: Well, imagine how well his uh, his audience knew scripture yeah. for him to be, or her, depending on who you think the author is, okay. uh, to be able to just write a phrase down mm-hmm. and then have complete confidence that his audience would not only understand the phrase, know where the phrase came from, but also understand the context. And mm-hmm. I think you've you've stated it perfectly. This isn't isegesis where he's trying to simply pull out one verse and say, ah, see, this builds my case. What he's actually trying to do is call that verse in order to connect us to a broader and bigger motif. Mm-hmm. And so I think what sometimes when we when we fall into this pitfall of eisegesis. We're actually making the text smaller. Yeah. What he's doing is he's using a text to make their understanding broader. Wow. Um, so it's 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 exegesis, but it's like we said, paradoxical exegesis. It's hermen, it's paradoxical hermeneutics, where you're looking at this verse to understand what it meant back then and you're also looking at the same verse to understand what it means now but you are also going to look at that verse to give you just a glimpse of what the author is trying to say in the coming future as we wait for Jesus
1: yeah and it's beautiful that he uses the psalms because those those were the songs those were the old familiar hymns of 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 these people of the Jewish people and so him taking a phrase out would be like if we said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. If someone just put that in in in, in a talk, people would automatically not just think of the phrase, um, not just you know, say, oh, what is he saying about the sound of of mm-hmm. grace? What he's saying, what we're trying to evoke is the entire song. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, say, can you see? Mm-hmm. When someone says that, People aren't thinking about oh, what is he asking us to see? We're thinking about the national anthem of of the United States, and so those 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 phraseologies pulling it pulling out a little bit of a lyric of a song really just evokes the entire emotion of the entire song, and that's what he seems to be doing here.
0: And I think that's an invitation for us to be more in tune, not only with the songs. Yeah but with the authors of the songs yes. right so you you talked about amazing grace i mean we have to know about william wilberforce mm-hmm. right and we have to know about the context and what that would have meant in the original uh setting and it's written and, and wilberforce's life and his journey you talk about oh say can you see and i'm thinking about uh the rocket's red glare and that siege over over the fort and mm-hmm these soldiers that have abandoned all hope because they're seeing the battering of the artillery. Mm -hmm. And you know that, and so you you really recognize the miracle that is America and that Mm -hmm. is uh, the Revolutionary War because you know a little bit of not only the song, but the author of the song. And I think that's the beauty of this particular Christology that we know about David. And we know about all that was placed upon the Davidic line. We we know about, for example, he he uses uh, a passage here from uh, that from the prophet Nathan in his in his promises. And so we know about that. We know about this this kingdom that will never end. That sadly was not uh, the reality for the Davidic line, mm-hmm. but in Jesus that reality has become uh, has become recognized. And so I think uh, we need to be more intentional, not only about memorizing our Bible, yeah. but about memorizing the situations and the stories and the realities and the authors mm-hmm. that surround those passages that we all love so much.
1: Yeah. And what, what undergirds this message when you see that linkage and the chain that's, that's put together is this beautiful picture of who God is, mm-hmm. who Christ is. And then also that dynamic of waiting that mm-hmm. you you brought out, and I don't know about you, but I hate to wait. I mean, <laughs> I just really don't. I will. I am one of those people who will try to figure out which line in the supermarket is moving faster. Right. Um, I think Randy talked about this mm-hmm. in a sermon recently, <laughs> um, where where when you get into line, you start you look at the person who gets into line where you thought you would be. I do this all the time at the the gas line at Costco, mostly, you know, where all those cars are there. And I'm like, you're at that, you're at that point where you have to decide, am I going to go into this lane, this lane, this lane, or this lane? And you're like, okay this lane was moving faster before. You've been tracking that. And so, okay, I'm going to go into that lane. And then another car pulls into the other lane. And then I'm just like, if he gets to the gas station before I do, it's so frustrating. (laughs) But I hate to wait. I don't know. Do do you also dislike waiting? Are you okay with waiting? How do you you feel about that? Yeah, I
0: I, I don't think any of us like to wait. I think it's kind of ingrained, right, in our human nature. So when we... uh, when we drive down from, uh, from home to drop, our, to drop our boys at school, mm-hmm. we'll get stuck in traffic. And you know how traffic is in Southern California. And so we'll be in one of the lanes um, and my son will always be looking around. Michael will always look at the lanes and he'll say, dad, move on to that <laughs> lane, it's moving faster. I don't know if this happens at Costco to you, but it definitely seems to happen to me every time I'm in traffic. I'll merge onto that lane and then that lane slows to a crawl, and the lane we were in moves faster, and it just is this growing frustration. Yes. So I've done something now with with him um, that that has helped us enjoy the wait, mm. and that is we've um, I've lately become very moved by uh, Tazé hymns, and Tazé mm. is a religious community in France that is uh, ecumenical and they basically just take the songs of of the Psalms and the songs of scripture Mm. and they set them to music. Mm. Um, And so we'll just hear that and listen to it Mm. and um, whether I'm with my boys in the car or I'm alone that's kind of that time in traffic has become my worship time and it's become so much more enjoyable. I think that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to do with us. He's trying to say, hey, waiting is part of the human existence. Yeah. And, wait, and who you wait for and what you wait for definitely shape your identity. But sometimes we don't realize that what we do while we wait mm-hmm. also shapes our identity. And so I think what we are being called to do through this beautiful uh, depiction of Christology is worship. I mean, how can you Mm -hmm. not read this particular passage and not have a heart full of worship? And so who are we waiting for? Christ. What are we waiting for? The parousia, the second coming. What are we doing while we wait? We are worshiping. And how do we worship? Um, that's that's I think up to up to each one of our friends out yeah. there. But I think when we move our uh, mental map from breathless expectation to worshipful waiting, mm-hmm. something changes, and maybe the experience becomes more
1: pleasurable. Yeah. So how we frame our waiting, how we think about our waiting really makes a big difference on how we experience it when, you know, that reminds me of um, an illustration I read in a book once, I don't even remember the book or the, or where it came from. But it, it talked about a skyscraper in, in New York City that they had built this beautiful skyscraper. But when they opened it, they received so many complaints about people that there weren't enough elevators. In the skyscraper because people were waiting and elevators weren't coming so they received so many um, complaints about this that they actually considered drilling a new tunnel throughout the entire building to create another mm-hmm. elevator which have been would have been i don't know how much the cost would have been but it was prohibitive but before they decided to take that step they brought in this design team and they asked them to figure out are there alternative ways can we move these elevators faster? Can we can we change that the, the way that the elevators work? And so these this design team came in and they started interviewing people, talking to people. And after all of that, their solution, you know what their solution was? Their solution was to put mirrors next to the elevators on every floor. Mm. And once they did that, the complaints went mm. away. Because when people saw themselves in the mirror and then they, had, they, they took the time to check themselves mm-hmm. in the mirror, that waiting time was reframed mm-hmm. in their mind. It wasn't wasted time. It was useful mm-hmm. time. And then they didn't mind waiting anymore. Right. So the time when they waited was actually exactly the same, but how they experienced the waiting was different because they were, now that, that time was considered oh. useful and beneficial.
0: That is such a seismic shift in how we perceive waiting, particularly as we're waiting for the return of Jesus. Mm-hmm. What if waiting then becomes a, a blessing? I, I don't have a, an illustration quite as powerful uh, as that, but I do have an experience that, that as you were talking, just immediately came to, to the forefront so I enjoy listening to to podcasts, and one of my favorites is uh, Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist History. Mm. I know several of us here on on staff are fans of that particular podcast. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago um, coming back from home, from work, and uh, traffic, again, is is a bear, but I don't mind the wait because I've got Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history. So um, finally, after what seemed to be about 45 minutes, I pull into my uh, garage, and there's about 10 minutes left on the podcast. And so I had been waiting all day to get home. I mean... Linda had made a wonderful meal. I was very excited to play with my boys. Um, So I'd been waiting all day to to get back home, but there were 10 minutes left. (laughs) And so you know what I did. I turned the car off, tried to be as quiet as possible, and stayed in the car until uh, the podcast was over. Actually, my kids came up out, and they saw my car, and they started knocking on the on the door. and um they say, "Why don't you want to come in? And I was like, "Well, I'm waiting. Um, so I think I think there is something pleasurable mm. and spiritual and worshipful about waiting. Mm. Um and so I think that's the beauty of, particularly epistles that are written to people that are breathlessly waiting for the return of Jesus. Yes. The question is, well, can, can this experience be meaningful and foundation, foundational and formational for yeah. you? And I think you've touched on something really important. How are we framing our waiting experiences? How are we looking at the time? And, and more importantly, then, how are we using that time? I think that's a really important question that we ought to consider.
1: Yeah, because like you talked about waiting can be an experience of worship if we appropriate if we approach it the right way. Um, I love um, uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the Message Bible of Romans, uh, Romans chapter eight, verses twenty-two through twenty-five. I jotted it down as as you were talking. It Says waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged mm. in the waiting. I love that mm. idea that that God is using a pregnant mother is obviously waiting for the child to be born but they she also understands that there is a process mm-hmm. there is a growth that's happening you actually don't want the kid to come too soon mm-hmm. because the child isn't fully developed mm-hmm. right obviously at some point you kind of get sick of the waiting if that waiting lasts too right. long and you feel right. like the child is getting too big but but there is no mother there, there's no mother that would say oh i just want the child to be born after 3 months um, I, I don't want to wait all the way to the nine months. Every single one of us wants the uh, child to to develop and to, and to say that. And I say this as a man that never has right. had to have a right. child <laughs> grow inside of me. But, but there is this desire for the child to develop healthy. Mm-hmm. And when we see that, when we see our waiting for God in that way, you know, as Adventists, understandably so, we are excited for the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. But when we get too excited about the end, sometimes we miss out on the benefits of the journey. Mm. It's almost like when we've gone on road trips as children, you know, the question that always pops up, um, well, always popped up when I was on these road trips across the country with my family was, are we there yet, Mm -hmm. right? But if we're constantly asking, are we there yet, we're missing all that is happening Mm -hmm. on the road around us and, And I think you brought that up beautifully. So then what does that look like? How do we engage and uh, engage in the waiting in a way that enlarges us, Mm -hmm. that it becomes a worshipful experience?
0: What a great way of looking at it. Now, I too have never given birth, um, but I have talked to, uh, to Linda quite a bit about that experience. And you know what? She really enjoyed her pregnancy because she knew that after both our sons uh, would come. Sleep was going to be a commodity uh, that was going to become very valuable. And so for nine months, we were very intentional mm. about resting, mm. about preparing, about resting and nesting. and mm. there there was something almost spiritual about that. Uh, yeah. you know, even as a bystander, um, that that whole experience, uh, was, was something I shared in and and was great. Um, so how do we engage this waiting, uh, as, as you asked, I don't know now, Joey, I, I don't ask, are we there yet anymore? Mm. The older I've gotten, the more I've realized that the journey is the destination. Mm. And I think that has to do, that has to do with maturity. Um, When I'm on a road trip, my favorite part isn't getting there. It's the conversation, the snacks, the changing scenery, uh, the discovery. And that that hall obviously has come with with maturity. So perhaps the first sign of Christian maturity is that we engage the journey as part of the destination. So we're not waiting for, you know, the second coming we're experiencing at least this at least partially the second coming which seems to be grammatically what uh, the authors of the new testament were doing as they're using particular tenses to describe the second coming as something that is in the process of happening rather than something that will happen i think that's the first the first thing the second thing is i think our friends might be asking, "Well, what does Christian maturity look like? Mm. What does this enjoying the journey look like?" Um, I think it 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 comes with patience. Mm. It comes with uh, a lack of this anxious energy that so often defines those of us who are yeah. breathlessly waiting. Mm. Um, I was I was in Hawaii when I was about sixteen. And I'd always dreamt, as a Southern California boy, uh, to ride waves in Hawaii. Hmm. Because Hawaiians will tell you that we here in Southern California don't know about big waves. And it has to do with the way they measure the waves. And our our colleague, Chris, our high school pastor, knows much more about this than I do. Um, But we get to Hawaii and we're going to finally uh, go out. And we're going out. Uh, not in Waikiki, which is a beach that all the tourists go to. We're going out in uh, on, on, on another beach, a beach that's uh, Yokohama Bay, which is primarily uh, the locals go there, and there's very few uh, lifeguards, and the lifeguards don't have jet skis, and it's, it's completely a different experience. And so I ask the lifeguard if it's safe to go out because I've never seen uh, the water and the waves so high. And he looks, and he says, he's kind of just looking at at the ocean. Yeah, there's no, just, there's no rush uh, to answer my question. There's just kind of this very placid look that he gives. And he says, he's looking and looking, and at that moment, I'm thinking, I think this guy's stoned, <laughs> um, because he just is looking. <laughs> At, at the horizon. Which is very possible. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the surfer guy who's just looking at the horizon. And then it hits me as he starts saying, well, you know, you see the break over there, you don't wanna get too close to that because that'll wash you against, uh, against uh, the, these rocks and uh, you can get really hurt. And so what I noticed, he, what he was doing is he was waiting in order to read And understand the ocean Mm. and for me um, that I was just interested in getting in and trying to ride and for me uh, surfing was all about the experience it was about the fun it was about the adrenaline rush Mm. for him stoned or not It was about the spiritual connection that one had. So it wasn't surfing; wasn't this fun activity. It was the spiritual activity, and so I asked him. I said, "Well, how do you know so much about about the sea?" And he 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 used this this Hawaiian word that I still haven't forgotten. He said, "Well, when when I'm out there, I can feel mana, mm-hmm. and mana was is, is simply this this Hawaiian word that means the spirit." Mm. And he says, sometimes I'll, I'll see a surfer come out of the ocean and I can just feel the mana emanating from him. And so that really shifted my perspective. Some of us are waiting um, and we just want to get through with it because we're mm-hmm. immature and we're all about the experience. Yeah. And other people have reached Christian matu- and the people that have reached Christian maturity are suing, are seeing the waiting as a spiritual exercise in living with, living and breathing with the Spirit.
1: Mm. And that's why you see throughout the, the followers of God's experiences, their journeys, there's just so much waiting. Abraham, I mean, we talk about he's the uh, the father of faith. He he waited so much of his life just to receive a little bit of the promises mm. that God promised him. Right? He didn't receive the la- He didn't own any land in um in in Canaan until his wife already died right? He was over a hundred years old. He didn't have his son. He was promised descendants um, that that was more numerous than the stars, who were more numerous than the stars. And he didn't even have a son until he was a hundred years old. So there was just so much waiting, so much anticipation. Uh, The people of God didn't come back to the land of Canaan until 400 years later. So there was, there was just all this, this waiting that happened um, for the people of God. And And maybe it's because God wants us to develop this this understanding, this frame of both patience for him, but also um, to understand that that there is growth Mm. that happens in the waiting.
0: Wow, that's, I think, really powerfully said. And so the activity changes, right? Surfing doesn't become uh, adrenaline-seeking enterprise. It becomes a spiritual exercise. Because the waiting always makes the end result better. Mm. Uh, It's interesting that that you talk about that. Uh, Genesis 21, I believe it is, Uh, you have Hagar being sent away. Mm. So finally, Genesis 20, uh, Isaac is born, and Genesis 21, you have Isaac and Ishmael are playing, and Ishmael's making Isaac laugh. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, something something happens inside Sarah. Mm -hmm. And Sarah realizes that as long as Ishmael's around, Ishmael will forever be a threat to Mm -hmm. Isaac. And so she says, send her away lest her son inherit Mm -hmm. And the word that the Septuagint uses for inheriting or becoming an heir mm-hmm. is the same word that Hebrews is going to use mm-hmm. in the passage we just read wow. to describe how we are heirs in Christ.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, think about what this what what this is hap- what, what is happening. We're not talking about waiting a hundred years like Abraham did. We're talking about millennia. It's been millennia of waiting, and the waiting has been wow. because God wants to make Ishmael an heir just like Isaac was an heir. Mm. And so the end result becomes so much better mm. because of the waiting. Wow. Um, I, think, I think that really changes then the way that we, that we ought to approach or yeah. envision waiting because waiting then doesn't simply become this moment where we're just like, let's get it, let's, let's get over with this. It becomes something greater. It becomes this anticipation because what God is going to do is far beyond what we can imagine.
1: Wow, that's so powerful. So the ancient um the ancient, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, the ones that the New Testament writers themselves are probably that was their Bible. He picks out that same word and uses it in, 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 in his letter, in his book of Hebrews, in order to possibly make that connection. Yeah. Wow, that's that's so mm. beautiful. So we need to reframe the way that we wait. Um, I, I wish we had time to also get into that aspect of of the mediator and how we are also we inherit then the priesthood um, that that Christ. Is he's a priest, and then we also inherit that priesthood right. and what that looks like. But that is also a part of what we get to do as we wait. And so, just
0: imagine how even that priesthood becomes broader because of the wait, right? Because yeah. Hebrews is going to talk, and you you start to see some connections there in the passage that we just that we just read about us now becoming priests. But people might be asking, "Well, we're not descendants of Aaron. Mm-hmm. We're not descendant. We're not Le- we're not mm-hmm. Levitical descendants." And the author of Hebrews is going to already think about that argument even before we have thought about it, mm-hmm. because he says, "Well, guess what? Your weight has enabled you to become a different kind of priest. Mm-hmm. You are going to because of Christ. Now you are wow. going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek." And his priesthood supersedes the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood because it's a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. And so we are not only heirs in a different way that Isaac was an heir, we are also priests in a different way that Aaron and the Levites were priests mm-hmm. because of the waiting so the waiting has enabled this idea of mediation priesthood and inheritance to broaden and maybe if we if we wanted if we wanted salvation to be microwaved then that broadening couldn't oh. have happened
1: so the the ministry of the priesthood expanded because the people of god had to wait yeah. because god chose to wait we are now a part of this this priesthood yeah. and we have truly been enlarged in the waiting wow
0: and that's good news isn't it It's good news joey i've so enjoyed chatting with you i'm looking forward to now delving after we've talked a little bit about the prologue and about christology delving into these ideas of rest that Hebrews is going to talk about, about the priesthood, which is going to be continued to be developed, and about kind of Jesus, which mm-hmm. is going to be amazing to see Jesus as both high priest and sacrificial lamb. I'm just thrilled to see what awaits us in this quarter. But for now, our time is up. So can you pray uh, for us to close our time together?
1: Let's pray. bow our heads to pray. Good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being a God who's willing to wait because we're not always ready. If, if, if you rushed forward, we wouldn't always be ready. And so you have the patience to wait on us. And we ask that you also develop the patience in us to wait on you to help us see that this waiting isn't just sitting around, but it is you, the opportunity for you to enlarge us, mm. enlarge our community, and also enlarge our hearts. It's our prayer in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Amen. So
1: we wait
0: expectantly to see you next week as we continue chatting about Hebrews. May God grant you a wonderful rest of the Sabbath day.